the old pilot's playing tales. Little Nelly and her friends. Little Nelly was a rare breed of aviatrix, the name of which has its origins in ancient Greek. Scholars have suggested that the first part comes from the word av, meaning back, again, and other, but it also relates to the Phrygian autos, meaning self, and the second part, eros, which possibly comes from the Sanskrit goal for circle. From Eros we get gyros, which refers to the brim of a hat, a walk, a bypass or lap, but also something round, or a movement in a circle. Thus, in more modern parlance, we have the more familiar autogyro, literally meaning self-turning. Flying an autogyro is a novel form of taking to the air, but something of a niche sport that is practiced by a few devotees, often because of the ability to land in very short distances. This was ably demonstrated by postman Doug Hughes. Now, Doug had a beef with Congress about campaign financing, and he wanted to deliver 535 letters, one for each serving congressman, in a way that might generate a little publicity. He was seen flying a few hundred feet off the ground along the National Mall from the Washington Monument before demonstrating the short landing capability of his autogyro by plunking it down on the west lawn of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. a few years back. He somehow managed to avoid the considerable air defences that are present to protect the US government and threw the Capitol building into a lockdown. Hughes pleaded guilty to several offences. He faced a possible three years in jail and a quarter of a million dollar fine, but pled down to 120 days in prison and a year of probation. He was fired from his job as a mailman, but successfully appealed the decision and was reinstated. In the last few weeks of his show, David Letterman asked President Obama what the top ten dumbest questions that he had ever been asked whilst in office were. Number one was apparently the errant autogyro pilot purportedly asking, "'When will you return my gyrocopter?' The autogyro has a number of different names, presumably for those not familiar with ancient Greek, and is commonly known as a gyroplane, gyrocopter, and sometimes a benson. The inventor of this unusual flying machine was the first count of La Sierva, Juan de la Sierva Cardonio. De la Sierva was a pretty clever chap a civil engineer with a talent as an inventor. He had been interested in flight since he was a teenager. In 1918, he built conventional, for the time that is, fixed-wing aircraft and the world's first trimotor. Its crash a year later after a stall convinced him that aviation safety called for stall-proof aircraft that could make steep takeoffs and landings safely at slow speeds. 
After tossing a toy model rotorcraft out of his parents' bedroom, he began experimenting with rotating wing aircraft in 1920 and developed the autogyro as a more stable form of flying machine. I'm guessing that we all know what a helicopter looks like, but not everyone will understand how an autogyro, although superficially similar in looks, works. The early versions resembled tail-wheeled aircraft fuselages. For example, an early version used the fuselage of a Sommer monoplane. They had a tractor, referring to the propeller type that pulls as opposed to a pusher, engine at the front but lacked wings. In place of the wings, there was a central shaft sticking up from near the centre of gravity upon which were mounted large rotor blades, like those on early helicopters. The rotor blades weren't powered, but rotated freely around. The way they work is the same way as a seed from a tree like a sycamore flies. The seed's wing, or the autogyra's blades, auto-rotate. Simply said, the wind pushing against them gives them the power to turn. Once they build up enough rotational speed, they also produce lift in the same way as an aerofoil does. For the falling sycamore seed, it merely slows the descent. But with an engine to give forward speed, the autogyro can easily build up enough speed to overcome its weight and fly. For those with sufficient interest, the more complicated version is this. As the aircraft is moving forward, the rotor is mounted in such a way that the plane of rotation is at a slight angle to the direction the aircraft's moving in. It tilts back, as opposed to helicopter rotors which tilt forward to make progress. Any wind passing over an aerofoil will create both lift and drag. The lift will be perpendicular to the airflow, and the drag will be parallel to the airflow. This is true for all aerofoils, not just for the rotor of an autogyro. When the lift and drag vectors are added together, they create a resultant force. In auto-rotation, this resultant force is in front of the axis of rotation, so in addition to providing lift, it also pulls the rotor forward. Simple, really. Out of interest, since the relative wind needs to turn the rotor disc, due to the aircraft's forward movement, it goes up through the rotor instead of down as it would in a helicopter confused yet? Trust me, it works. How the young first count worked all this out is an indication of his genius, but he had some problems as well. His first efforts, the Sierra C1, 2 and 3, weren't successful and got little past a fast taxi or just getting a few inches into the air. He discovered a major problem in his initial rotor design. The blades were all set at a fixed angle. This was fine for the blades that were advancing forward into the airflow, as they made lots of lift, but the other ones, the retreating blades, didn't. This meant that one side of the rotor disc was flying much better than the other, which caused a big imbalance and a big problem. To cure this asymmetry, 
where the blades joined the central hub, the count fitted hinges that allowed the blades to flap, smoothing out the variations in lift. With that problem sorted out, in January 1923, flown by Alejandro Gomez Spencer, the C4 became the first autogyro to fly. Aviation would never be the same again. Well, it would actually, but the autogyro was a good first step on the road to the development of the noisiest, most horrible flying machine ever to take to the air by beating it into submission, the helicopter. But that's another story. The C4 flew and it very quickly demonstrated the quality that our count was counting on. Only three days after its first flight, in a steep climb, shortly after takeoff, the engine failed. Now, a conventional aircraft would almost certainly have stalled and plunged into the ground, but instead, the autogyro descended gently downwards, without damage or injury to the courageous Alejandro Gomez Spencer. Before long, with financial help from the Spanish military aviation establishment, the Count had built his sixth autogyro, imaginatively named the C-6, and one of their pilots flew it the six and a half miles between two airfields in eight minutes, which, by my reckoning, was considerably less than one mile a minute, but a significant achievement for the rotorcraft of the time. The Scottish industrialist James Weir learned of De La Sierra's achievements and asked him to create a company in England to build more of the machines. Before long, a new C-6 was demonstrating in front of the British Air Ministry at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, and Britain then became the world's centre of autogyro development. Improvements were made to the blade flap hinge, which included some fore and aft movement to ease stress, and this was incorporated in the C8 version, which also became the first rotorcraft to cross the English Channel. Then the US industrialist Harold Pitcairn visited England, and after being taken airborne for a test flight, which included a safe auto-rotation descent to a gentle landing, was greatly impressed. He purchased a C-8, powered by a right whirlwind engine, and took it back to the States, where it was produced under licence by a number of manufacturers, and also by Fock Wolf in Germany. One area that needed improvement in the design was the reduction in ground run for takeoff. The rotor needed to be started turning by hand before takeoff but it took quite a while before the forward speed spanned the blades up enough to allow flight. The next step was to devise a way of accelerating the rotor prior to takeoff, which would dramatically shorten the run required. Various methods were used, from a simple rope wrapped around the shaft and pulled by a team of men, then horses, and finally a motor car, but none made the autogyro self-sufficient. Our count tried deflecting the propeller slipstream upwards through the rotor, and then the machine's own engine was coupled to a shaft which drove the rotors. 
Initially developed by Pitcairn in America, this method was eventually adopted in later versions of the Count's machines. I think we can all see where the autogyro was headed, but its passage into a true helicopter capable of sustained hovering was still a way off, but at least the new system allowed them to get the autogyro into the air vertically. They called it a jump takeoff, and it required the blades to be spun up to as high a speed as possible, which then allowed it to lift off, and then before the speed of the rotor fell away, the pilot would transition quickly to forward flight. Improvements were also being made to the design of the rotor hub, which allowed tilt to the rotors, doing away with the need for a conventional tail section. Now the pilot had one control for pitch and roll, and a bar moved by the feet for yaw, although having a freewheeling rotor meant there was no need for a tail rotor. A simple rudder served. The way was now open for the first helicopters, and it was the Russian Central Aero-Hydrodynamic Institute who may have made the first tentative steps in 1932 with the TSAGI-1EA. Oh followed by the French company Breger-Dorand and the German Focke-Wulf company the following year. Helicopters are, though, a different story, as we want to know about Little Nelly. As aircraft and helicopters developed, the autogyro fell somewhere between them. It wasn't as quick as a fixed-wing aircraft, nor as streamlined, so consumed more fuel. It was quicker than a helicopter, but lacked the flexibility to hover and manoeuvre within tight spaces. Although some were made for military use in both world wars, they were pretty much sidelined. However, both the Germans and Japanese made a version to fly from submarines, the Soviets used them for artillery spotting, and the RAF used some to calibrate their coastal radar stations during the Battle of Britain. As interest moved away from this odd little niche machine, they still held a place in the heart of many enthusiasts, and the design was optimised into a lightweight frame of metal tubing supporting a pusher engine, which allowed greater visibility from a partly enclosed bullet-shaped cockpit. The rotor design was modernised and materials improved so that it became very, very safe, flexible and a fun way to take to the air. The leaders in the modernization of the autogyro were people like Igor Benson, a Russian immigrant to the US who developed a small single-seat version for the US military. Whilst in the United Kingdom, a rather eccentric former RAF wing commander built similar designs which were used by police forces, in military training and in the search for the Loch Ness Monster. Wallace became a leading exponent of the autogyro and earned 34 world records. He had joined the Air Force during the war, despite cheating at his eye test, flew operational missions in Lysanders and Wellington bombers before being seconded to the US Strategic Air Command, where he flew the enormous Convair B-36 Peacemaker. Wallace's chief claim to fame was to appear in a James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice, flying his Wallace WA-116 Agile, 
which was named Little Nelly after the legendary musical performer Nelly Wallace. Why he thought the noisy buzzing and flapping of Little Nelly made him think of the musical performer is not made clear. During the movie, he flew Little Nelly through a series of semi-aerobatic manoeuvres with great panache, buzzing buildings, in and out of a volcano, and finally destroying four of Blofeld's armed Bell 47 helicopters with rear-facing flamethrowers, parachute mines, machine guns, rockets, and over-the-shoulder launched air-to-air missiles, all fired from neat buttons marked by a 1970s plastic Dymo label maker. Hello, Base One. Listening. Little Nelly got a hot reception. Four big shots made improper advances towards her. But she defended her honour with great success. Heading for home. Listening to the dialogue today, I have no doubt there were a few who winced. Not exactly classic Bond. There have been a few developments of the autogyro, but none that have really caught on. Some very smart, fully enclosed versions have been made, one of which, the Green Hawk 4, four-seater, was used to patrol Salt Lake International Airport during their Winter Olympics. Another fascinating development of the Autogyro principle was the Ferry Rotodyne. Aimed at being an airport transfer and intercity transport, this remarkable aircraft could seat up to 48 passengers the production version would carry over 60, and was a combination tip-jet-powered rotorcraft with a short-fixed wing upon which there were two conventional Napier turboprop engines. For vertical takeoff and landing, the tip-jets, powered by air, bled from the engines mixed with fuel, would spin the rotors, but once in forward motion, powered by the Napiers, they could be shut down and the rotor would auto-rotate, relying on the forward speed. The short wings held the forward thrust engines and aided by providing additional lift. For landing, the rotor jets would be restarted, allowing the aircraft to hover in a way not possible in a conventional auto jet. Rotodyne, take off turns, please. Rotodyne from tower, you're clear to go. Roger, Rotodyne taking off now. The concept had many advantages, including its high-speed cruise of 200 knots and the simplicity of control, as unlike a helicopter, it didn't need a tail rotor. There's no doubt that it would have made a very safe way to fly, but the real problem was the noise of those rotor jets fixed to the blade tips. The test pilot, John Farley, said of it, From two miles away, it would stop a conversation. I mean, the noise of those little jets on the tips of the rotor was just indescribable. So, what have we got? The noisiest hovering vehicle the world has yet to come up with? And you're going to stick it in the middle of a city? 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 If you enjoyed this story, then why not let your friends know about it on social media? 
or perhaps leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you'll never guess, but you can find that at airlinepilotguy.com.